So, when I was in 11th grade, we had this chapter called P-Block Elements, and we basically looked at groups 13 and 14, and we have this same chapter again this year in 12th grade, but this time its focus is basically on group 15 and 16. So, I think I'll just explain as much of the 12th grade parts of the P-Block Elements as I can, and then um, switch back to the 11th grade stuff, because the 12th grade stuff is what's going on currently, and I really need to be good with it, because we have another test, so... Yippee. So yeah, what are p-block elements? They're basically the elements in which the differentiating electron enters into the p-shell of the p-subshell of the outermost shell, right? So now that we're done with that part, let's move on to the 15th group elements. They're also called the nitrogens, and this is basically the family of nitrogen. Um, so here we have nitrogen, phosphorus, arsenic, antimony, and bismuth. Antimony, uh, antimony, what, what's antimony? Antimony, huh? So, yeah, that's Sb, and arsenic is As, bismuth is Bi, you know nitrogen and phosphorus. Now, nitrogen and phosphorus are both nonmetals. Arsenic and antimony are metalloids, and bismuth is the only metal. Now, the general electronic configuration for all these guys is Ns2 and P3. So they have a full S, and they have a half-filled P. Now, when you look at the atomic radius, the atomic radius increases from nitrogen to bismuth because you're going down the group so you see um, more shells being added and as the number of shells increases then it's obvious that the atomic size increases now between um, antimony and bismuth we see a very very small increase this is only because of the ineffective shielding of the 4f orbital so basically the 4f orbital doesn't do its job of protecting the outermost electrons from the nuclear force of attraction right so it's just doing a very terrible job like a half-drunk babysitter and as a result of that the outermost electrons aren't shielded right and it's easier for the nucleus to pull on them resulting in a not so big increase in atomic radius next is ionization enthalpy or ie this is basically the amount of energy that you'd have to put in to remove an electron from the outermost shell of a neutral isolated gaseous atom so basically what we're doing is we're taking all these nitrogens um, nitrogen phosphorus arsenic antimony and bismuth and we are putting them in an atmosphere or in an environment in an environment oh my gosh i cannot speak today in an environment where um they're all by themselves they're all unreactive and they are isolated that i said that when they were isolated right oh my god i don't know where i'm going with this so back to the point if you're still here thank you um so yeah nitrogen is the smallest among the elements right so in this case we have that the outermost electrons are very very close to the nucleus as compared to the other elements that is so when this happens um it's not exactly that easy to just pluck it off like that it's like kidnapping a kid in front of its overprotective mom right so we need to be supplying a lot more energy in order to do this whole thing but then if you look at the very last one bismuth this is super duper big so it's like a mom who doesn't really care where her children are because she has too many to take care of right so in this case the electron is like super duper far from the nucleus and because of that it's a lot easier to pull it off without having to put in too much energy to overcome the nuclear force of attraction so as we know that atomic radius increases from nitrogen to bismuth ie on the other hand it decreases 
from nitrogen to bismuth because as you go lower and lower you don't have to use that much energy to remove it ie is inversely proportional to atomic radius in terms of electronegativity it forms it follows rather the same order as the ionization enthalpy because the smaller an atom is the more likely it is to pull more electrons towards it right next we have our oxidation state now the common oxidation states for the group 15 elements are either the plus 3 or the plus 5 nitrogen can exhibit an os from minus 3 to plus 5 so it can either lose all three electrons or it can gain five more electrons now due to the inert pair effect Oh wait, before I get to that, I think I'm wrong. The nitrogen exhibiting an OS from minus 3 to plus 5, I got that completely wrong. It can go to minus 3 by accepting 3 electrons and filling its P, P subshell, or it can lose 5 electrons, lose the 3 electrons it has in its P subshell, and then the 2 electrons from the S subshell, and it could get back to a good, nice, happy configuration of helium. Right? Helium or neon. Helium if it um, gives away all five, neon if it takes three more. So now, back to the inert pair effect. Now, remember how when we were talking about atomic radius, I told you about um, antimony and bismuth both having terrible 4f orbitals that can't shield the outer electrons properly? So what happens is, for these guys, due to that terrible shielding, their S electrons, they are held way too tightly. So they're not ready to push their S electrons to help in the bond formation. So because of this, they only exhibit a plus three oxidation state. They can only give away the three electrons in their P subshell. They can't toss in the, what do you call it? The two S electrons as well, because those guys are being held back by the nuclear force of attraction because of the terrible shielding. So because of this, the plus three oxidation stability increases down the group, especially for SB and BI. Now, for bismuth, the plus three, from what we just read, the plus three oxidation state is more stable than BI in its plus five oxidation state. Next, we come to covalency. Covalency is basically um, the number of bonds formed by an atom. Now, for nitrogen, the maximum covalency is four. And this is only because of the absence of the d orbitals, right? But then for the remaining um, elements in that group, they can expand their valency, their covalency rather, up to six because they have d orbitals. It's not like they are using it, but it's still there. It's like an empty thing that they can use anytime they want. Now, anomalous properties of nitrogen. Before we understand what they are, let's figure out why it exhibits it in the first place. Nitrogen shows anomalous properties due to its small size, its high electronegativity, the absence of the d orbitals, and a high ionization enthalpy. Now, what are these anomalous properties? Well, if you look at nitrogen, it only forms p pi p pi bonds, but other elements form p pi d pi bonds. Nitrogen is chemically inert because it has a triple bond between two nitrogens, but the others are less chemically inert. Nitrogen has a max covalency of 4, the others have a max covalency of 6. Nitrogen exhibit, exhibit, exists, I was going to say exhibits and exists, and I don't even know what I was trying to say. So yeah, nitrogen exists in its diatomic form, N2, right? 
and the other elements, they exist in their tetraatomic form. Four. Now that we're done with that, let's move on to the hydrides. The nitrogens form hydrides of the form MH3, where M is basically all these nitrogens. So in this case, the stability decreases down the group, the bond angle decreases down the group, the MH bond energy decreases down the group, and the Lewis basic nature decreases down the group. Why does this happen? Let's consider two examples. Um, nitrogen and hydrogen together and bismuth and hydrogen together. So now when you look at nitrogen and hydrogen, nitrogen is comparatively smaller, right? And hydrogen's already super duper small. So in this case, if we had to draw a line between their centers, then the bond length would be really, really small. But then if you compare bismuth and hydrogen, bismuth's this humongous giant, right? And hydrogen is just a teensy tiny little jelly bean, right? So if you drew a line between their centers, we would see that this bond line, this line, would be very, very, very big as compared to the one between nitrogen and hydrogen. And because of this, um, you can have very easy dissociation. So the stability decreases. For nitrogen and hydrogen, because that bond length is so small, they're a lot closer together. So it's like you're trying to split a group of best friends apart, right? So you'd require a lot of energy to do that. So in this case, the bond energy is high. But then for bismuth and hydrogen, because that bond length is already so big, it's so weak, we don't need to put in that much energy. So the bond energy is a lot less than before. Now, when you look at the Lewis basic nature thingy, a Lewis base is basically something that can donate an electron. Now, both nitrogen and bismuth have lone pairs, but nitrogen is super duper small. So that lone pair can't move around the atom that much. So it's very easy to just kick it off right but then bismuth it's super duper big and it also has a lone pair but this lone pair can move around the big atom it can like easily just take a walk it's like trying to find a kid when it's hiding in a small room whereas trying to find a kid when it's running around a huge castle it's easier to find the kid and kick it out if it's in a small room but if it's in a castle it's really really hard so when you look at the chemistry terms, nitrogen is smaller and it can kick off its electron because the electron density is more for the same charge. It, the same charge is on a smaller area. But then if you look at bismuth, you have the same charge, but it's on a lot, a bigger area. So it's like dispersed, it's a dispersed charge. And now coming to bond angle, when you look at nitrogen, the bonded electrons are very close by because Nitrogen, um, it undergoes sp3 hybridization, and then the s orbitals from the h, they form a bond. And because they're so close, these bonded electrons are so close, we see that there's bond pair, bond pair repulsion, and therefore a bigger angle. But then as you go down the group, if you take bismuth, for example, the bigger atoms, they find it harder to make a hybrid, right? So in their case, it's only the pure orbitals that are involved in the bond. And because it's only the pure orbitals, we see smaller angles. Now coming to the reducing nature of the hydrides. Um, reducing nature, let's take in this case to be how happy it is, how easy it is for this molecule to let go of the hydrogen. Now, if we compare the sizes, again, just to keep imagining this, a small nitrogen and a small hydrogen, the length between the distance between their centers versus a huge bismuth and a small hydrogen and the distance between their centers. Who would find it easier to let go of the H? It would be easier for the bismuth to let go of the H. So if you look at the reducing nature, it increases down the group because the bond length increases down the group.
Next is the boiling point. Now, if you look at the boiling point, phosphorus hydride has the least, then arsenic hydride, and then NH3, and then SBH3, and then BIH3. Now, why isn't NH3 at the very bottom? This is because of hydrogen bonding. Nitrogen is highly electronegative, so it starts pulling all the electrons towards it. So nitrogen gets a partial negative, hydrogen gets a partial positive. You put a bunch of partial negatives and partial positives together. The partial positives go to the partial negatives and the partial negatives go to the partial positives. So they all sort of help each other out that way. And now for some extra points. Um, Mg3N2 plus 3H2O gives us 3MgOH twice plus 2NH3. Ca3P2 plus 3H2O gives us 3CaOH twice plus 2PH3. Um, when you look at NCH3 thrice, we see that it has an sp3 hybridization. But if you look at NSIH3 thrice, it undergoes sp2 hybridization. Um, because we see the formation of only two sigma bonds. The lone pair on nitrogen is not available because the lone pair on the nitrogen forms a P-pi-D-pi bond with silicon. So it's like sort of back bonding sort of stuff. It's not a direct bond. Now that we're done with the hydrides, let's move on to the oxides. Again here, because of their plus three and plus five oxidation states, we see that there are two main types of oxides forms, formed, M2O3 and M2O5. Um, again here, N2O3, N2O5, P4O6, P4O10, these are acidic, AS4O6, AS4O10, SP4O6, SP4O10, these are amphoteric, and Bi2O3, Bi2O5, these guys are basic. Now nitrogen also forms oxides of the order N2O and NO, which are neutral, and NO2, which is acidic. Um, after this... Yeah, the non-metallic oxides are generally acidic, the metallic oxides are generally basic. So if you look at acidic strength, it decreases down the group because it goes from uh, it goes from metals to non I'm, I'm sorry, it goes from non-metals to metalloids to metals. So the acidic strength decreases down the group. Um, here's a little formula a few formulae you need to remember. N2O3 plus H2O gives us 2HNO3. N2O5 plus H2O gives us 2HNO3. P4 plus 3O2 gives us P4O6. And P4 plus 5O2 gives us P4O10. Now, halides. Again, here, plus 3, plus 5 oxidation states. So we have halides of the order MX3 and MX3. Five. Nitrogen does not form the MX5 type of halide due to the absence of the D orbital. And except BIF3, all the remaining trihalides are predominantly covalent. Next is the fact that pentahalides are more covalent than trihalides. Why? Because consider AS plus 5 and AS plus 3. AS plus 5 would be a lot smaller than AS plus 3 because it's given off more electrons. So now the positive is like more dominating in AS plus 5 than it is in AS plus 3. And because it's so small, it's easy it's easy to polarize the big negative, right? So it pulls the electron towards its, itself, the shells overlap, and they share their electrons. In terms of the Lewis base nature, NF3 is less basic than NCl3, which is less basic than NBr3, which is less basic, less basic than Ni3. 
why is nf3 less basic than ni3 if you look at nf3 um the fluorine is very very electronegative so it pulls the electrons from nitrogen it reduces the electron density on nitrogen and that makes it a lot harder for it to give off electrons whereas for ni3 um, the iodine doesn't withdraw any electrons from nitrogen it's not that electronegative so the nitrogen can freely give off its electron and in terms of stability nf3 is more stable than ncl3 which is more stable than nbr3 which is more stable than ni3 now nf3 does not undergo hydrolysis because of the very high nf bond strength now here are some extra reactions ncl3 plus 3h2o gives us nh3 plus 3hocl hocl is hypochlorous acid PCl3 plus H2O gives us 3HCl and POH thrice, or H3PO3. ASCl3 plus 3H2O gives us HCl plus H3ASO3. Now, for SB and BI due to the inert pair effect, SBCl3 plus H2O gives us SBOCl, antimony oxychloride plus 2HCl, and BICl3 plus H2O gives us BIOCl plus 2HCl, BIOCl, bismuth oxychloride. Now, Phosphorus can expand its covalency up to 6, right? So PCl5 plus Cl- gives us PCl6-. P has, why does this happen? P has an empty d orbital, the chlorine has two extras. These two extras go into the empty d orbital of the phosphorus and give it a negative charge. Next, we come to their reactions with metals. Metals react with our nitrogens to form compounds in which the oxidation state of the nitrogen is minus three. Remember this. So here we see calcium nitride, Ca3N2, calcium phosphite, Ca3P2, sodium arsenide, Na3As, zinc antimonite, Zn3Sb2, and magnesium bismuthite, Mg3Bi2. And with that, we come to an end of the general properties of the nicogens. Okay, so I was going through all the stuff that I'd uploaded and I was wondering why the properties of the compounds of nitrogen wasn't up because I remembered like clearly recording the full thing and like spending like at least 20 minutes or something on it. But then um, I realized that I probably just forgot to start recording it, like click that little record button thingy. So that's just kind of sad. sad. Side. What's side? I'm feeling very side today. Oh, well, can't speak. Okay, let's go. Um, the first one we're going to be talking about, the first compound of nitrogen, or more like a molecule of nitrogen, would be our dinitrogen, or N2. This is basically how nitrogen generally exists when it's out in the atmosphere. So let's talk about the preparation. The first method of preparation would be by the reaction of ammonium chloride with NaNO2 sodium nitrate. So that would be NH4Cl plus NaNO2 giving us N2 plus 2H2O plus 2NaCl. And impurities like nitrogen oxide, NO, HNO3, they're all removed by passing this through aqueous H2SO4 that contains K2Cr2O7. Another way of preparing it would be by the thermal decomposition of ammonium dichromate. So that would be NH4 twice Cr2O7 if heated up, you get N2 plus 4H2O plus Cr2O3. And the final way of getting our little nitrogen 
is um, again by the thermal decomposition, but this time of metal azides. Now, what is an azide? An azide is basically when you have three nitrogens together, and now that they're together, they all have a negative one charge. So, um, an example for this would be BaN3 twice. You heat it up, you get Ba plus 3N2. <clears throat> so, now let's move on to the properties of dinitrogen. To start off with, dinitrogen is a colorless, odorless, non-toxic gas. It reacts with metals to form nitrites. Um, we have Mg plus N2 giving us Mg3N2. We have Li plus N2 giving us Li3N. And finally, it reacts with oxygen to give NO. Now, this thing is pretty important because this is the only endothermic combustion. Because nitrogen, N2, has triple bonds between the two nitrogens, um, what happens is the energy that we need to break these three bonds is a lot greater than what we need to form NO. So in that case, in order to actually make these two come together, we need to supply some heat in order for it to absorb all that energy and then break those three bonds to form NO. Now we come to the oxides of N2. Um, when we were discussing the oxides of the P block, the 15th group of the P block elements, um, we were basically, we basically touched upon the fact that they either form it in the oxidation state of plus five or plus three, right? And then I'd also told you that nitrogen has an oxidation state that's a lot more variable, right? It can go to plus three or minus five anywhere between those. So our first oxide will be nitrogen, dinitrogen oxide, sorry. Um, the formula for this would be N2O. And in this, um, in this little molecule thing, the oxidation state is plus one. And how do we get it? We heat up NH4NO3 and that gives us N2O plus 2H2O. Now this is a colorless gas. Next, we come to nitrogen monoxide. This is NO, and here the oxidation state is plus two. Now we can either heat up these two guys together and get NO, an endothermic combustion, or we can go for the reaction, two NaNO2 plus two FeSO4 plus three H2SO4, giving us FeSO4 thrice, plus two NaHSO4 plus two H2O plus two NO. That was a mouthful. And this is again, a colorless gas. Now we move on to nitrogen, dinitrogen rather, in the plus three oxidation state. So here it forms dinitrogen trioxide. So the formula would be N2O3. How do we get it? We heat up NO and N2O4 to a temperature of 250 Kelvin, and we end up with two N2O3. Now this is blue and it's a solid. Next is nitrogen dioxide, so this is NO, and this is something that we've all heard, right? And here the oxidation state would be plus three. How do we get this? 2NO plus N2O4. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. No, 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 that was the one for dinitrogen trioxide. How do we get di nitrogen dioxide? Um, we heat up PBNO3 twice to a temperature of 673K, and we get four moles of NO2 plus PBO plus O2. And here, NO2 is a brown gas. Next is dinitrogen tetroxide. Again, this is like a dimer of nitrogen dioxide, and the formula here would be N2O4. And in this case, the oxidation state is plus four. 
And basically what happens is if you cool two moles of NO2, you get N2O4. And if you heat N2O4, you get two moles of NO2. So it's sort of an equilibrium reaction. Next would be dinitrogen pentoxide, N2O5. In this um, little compound, our oxidation state would be plus five. How do we get it? 4HNO3 plus P4O10 gives us 4H3PO3 plus 2N2O5. Again, this is colorless, but this time it is a solid. After this, we come to the structure of the oxides. N2O is a linear molecule and it's diamagnetic. NO is an odd electron molecule. It's paramagnetic. That means you don't have filled orbitals. The last one isn't filled. And again, it's a linear molecule. N2O3 is planar and it's diamagnetic. Here we see that nitrogen makes a coordinate covalent with oxygen. And NO2 is angular. That means it's sort of bent because of the lone pair. Well, not the lone pair, the lone electron rather. It's paramagnetic and it's an odd electron species. Again, because of that unpaired electron. Now this, you move on to its dimer, N2O4. N2O4 is planar and diamagnetic. Again, we have our coordinate covalence with oxygen. Now, I keep saying coordinate covalent, just in case you don't know. It's basically a bond in which one um, atom gives both of the shared electrons. You know, it's like, um, it's like friend A and friend B. Friend A comes from a rich family, friend B comes from a poor family. So friend A basically provides everything that friend B needs and they pretend like they're sharing it. Um, and finally, we come to N2O5. This would be planar and it's diamagnetic. Next, we move on to the oxo acids. Now, what is an oxo acid? An oxo acid is essentially just an acid that contains oxygen in which at least one hydrogen atom is bonded to that oxygen. So basically, whenever we put an acid in water, um, according to Arrhenius, that has to dissociate and give us our H plus, right? So this H plus can only come out if it's bonded to something that's electronegative, right? Because that would have pulled all the electrons. So this makes it a little easy target, you know? So yeah, let's talk about our first oxo acid, hyponitrous acid. The formula for this would be H2N2O7. Here we have um, one lone pair on each nitrogen. So we end up with four unpaired electrons. Next would be nitrous acid nitrous acid 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 you know i think i'd rather like to say acid over acid but i don't know nitrous acid hno2 um here we have only one lone pair on the single nitrogen then nitric acid hno3 here we see nitrogen forming a coordinate covalent with oxygen and finally per nitric acid hno4 where it forms um that same coordinate covalent with oxygen. And we have an extra oxygen with the hydrogen. With that, we come to the end of all the properties and stuff about dinitrogen. So let's move on to ammonia, NH3. Now this thing always confuses me. Ammonia is NH3, ammonium is NH4. So let's start, preparation. How do we prepare ammonia? The first way is by the hydrolysis of urea. Urea is NH2CONH2 um, by the hydrolysis, hydrolysis, hydrowater lysis break. Um, so NH2CONH2 plus H2O gives us NH4 twice CO3. And then that reacts further to give you 2NH3 plus H2O plus CO2. 
Another way we can do it is by making any ammonium salt react with caustic soda, NaOH, or CaOH twice. So, for example, we can take NH4Cl plus CaOH twice. That would give us CaCl2 plus 2NH3 plus 2H2O. And finally, we come to the commercial method. This is Haber's process. So basically what we do here is we combine one mole of nitrogen with three moles of hydrogen, both of them in their gas states. And this gives us 2NH3. Now, this is an exothermic, I'm sorry, endothermic reaction. Endothermic or exothermic? Hmm. It is exothermic because it's a negative. It's negative 92 kilojoules. So if it's a negative for the, del for the delta H, that means it's exothermic. My bad. So the temperature for this would be, the temperature to make this whole thing happen would be 700 to 750 kelvins. Then Kelvin, then the pressure would be around 200 atm. The catalyst would be finely divided iron. And the promoter, basically the thing that helps the catalyst work better, would be molybdenum. Next, we come to the properties of ammonia. Ammonia is a colorless gas with a pungent smell. And I am not kidding. The smell is so bad that when we had to do our salt analysis thing at the lab, um, and I checked for the presence of the ammonia by smelling it, um, I kind of took like a deeper inhale, I think. I, I don't know how you talk, talk about that. Anyway, I just like inhaled all that stuff and i couldn't get the smell out of my nose for an entire day and it was so bad it was horrendous huh and next it has a high boiling point due to the intermolecular hydrogen bonds that's because nitrogen is coupled or is paired rather with hydrogen nitrogen loves the electron so it starts pulling everything towards itself so it gets a partial negative the hydrogen gets a partial positive and they just attract between them um, so yeah, next it's highly soluble in water. NH3 plus H2O gives us NH4OH and it's used as a reagent in qualitative salt analysis for the analysis of basic radicals or cations. Say if we take ZnSO4 with NH4OH, we get a white precipitate. Well, that white precipitate would be ZnOH twice. If we take FeCl3, then we get a brown precipitate, FeOH thrice. If we take Cu, then we get a deep blue precipitate. And if we take silver, it would form a colorless um, precipitate that happens to be soluble. Next, we come to the structure. Um, when you look at ammonia, um, what happens is the nitrogen, in this case, is sp3 hybridized. So it takes on a pyramidal structure. Say it didn't have that lone pair on the top, it would form a tetrahedral structure like the carbon. And now for some extra points. Um, NH3 plus chlorine in excess gives us NCl3 plus HCl. If we take NH3 in excess plus chlorine, we get N2 plus 6 NH4Cl. Now solution of ammonium salt and Nestler's reagent in any alkali gives us a brown precipitate. And this brown precipitate indicates the presence of NH4. Next, we talk about nitric acid, HNO3. How do we prepare it? Simple, we just react any nitrate salt with concentrated H2SO4. NaNO3 plus H2SO4 gives us NaHSO4 plus HNO3. And another way we can do it is by Ostwald's process. 
So what we do is, number one, we um, catalytically oxidize NH3 to NO. What's the reaction? 4NH3 plus 5O2 in the presence of platinum at a temperature of 500K and at a pressure of 9 bar, we get 4NO plus 6H2O. Next, this NO is oxidized to NO2. How? 2NO plus O2 gives us 2NO2. And finally, this NO2 is dissolved in water to get HNO3. 3NO2 plus H2O gives us 2HNO3 in the gas form plus NO. So what are we doing? In the first step, we're using ammonia to get us NO. Then we're oxidizing the NO to get NO2. And finally, we're dissolving the NO2 in water so we can get our little acid. Now, in HNO3, we see that um, nitrogen is sp2 hybridized and it forms a coordinate covalent with oxygen. Now, let's move on to the properties. HNO3, I think the main property here would be that it acts as a strong oxidizing agent. It doesn't attack just metals alone, it attacks non-metals as well. So let's consider the reaction with metals first. Here, when we talk about metals, it matters whether or not we've taken dilute HNO3 or concentrated HNO3. If we take dilute HNO3 plus a metal, we end up getting NO plus H2O plus a nitrate or N2O. We don't need to get NO necessarily. We can also get N2O. So what we see is that it goes from its oxidation state of plus 5 in the dilute HNO3 to plus 2 in NO or plus 1 N2O. Depends on the metal. But if we take concentrated HNO3 plus a metal, it just goes down to an oxidation state of plus 4. We get NO2 plus H2O plus a nitrate. Some metals like chromium, aluminum, and gallium, they don't react with HNO3 at all. This Why? Because they form this little oxide layer sort of thingy that works as um, their sort of protection, immunity from further attack for the further oxidation by the HNO3. Now we move on to the nonmetals, the reaction of the HNO3 with the nonmetals. Now, when we talked about metals, it was kind of important whether we took dilute HNO3 or concentrated HNO3. But when it comes to nonmetals, it doesn't really matter, right? Whether we take concentrated or dilute HNO3, when we react it with the metal, we get the acid of the nonmetal plus NO2 plus H2O. And the last part of this little HNO3 would be the brown ring test. Now the brown ring test is basically a test that's used to identify an NO3 minus ion in a nitrate salt. So what we do is we just um, put in our nitrate salt in our test tube and then we add some freshly prepared ferrous sulfate, FeSO4. And then along the sides of the test tube, we um, drop in a little bit of concentrated H2SO4. When this happens, we see that a brown ring appears at the junction of the two liquids. And this brown ring basically tells us that the nitrate ion is present. Now, what is actually going on behind the scenes? Or, I don't know, deeper into the scenes? I don't know, because it's like the scene, you're just seeing the stuff, but this is all that's happening like at the very basic level, you know, with the molecules and stuff. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, NO3 minus plus 3Fe2+, plus, plus 4H+, plus from the acid, the Fe2+, plus from the FeSO4, and the NO3- minus from the unknown salt. That gives us NO plus 3Fe3+, plus, plus 2H2O. At the same time, the Fe3+, plus in the solution, plus the water that it made, 
That combines to form Fe with six water molecules and a charge of plus two. That combines with NO to give us Fe with five molecules of water and NO, again with a charge of plus two. Now this whole thing that I just talked about, that is what the brown ring complex is. Now, a few extra points before we wrap it up. 2HNO3 plus P4O10 gives us N2O5 because here P4O10 acts as a dehydrating agent. And the last reaction of this whole part would be HNO3 plus HNO2 in the presence of P4O10 gives us N2O4. And that's about it. That's all we have for nitrogen. Now, just when you thought it was over, no, we have phosphorus, and phosphorus is compounds to check out before we move any further. So, yeah, we just learn about phosphorus and all of phosphorus's compounds, and then we get to move on to the 16th group elements. Okay, so let's talk about phosphorus. Um, phosphorus, it has three allotropic forms, white, red, and black phosphorus. White phosphorus is insoluble in water, but soluble in CS2. Here we see sp3 hybridization. The PPP bond angle would be 60 degrees. And due to this angular strain, it's highly reactive. It undergoes disproportionation. That means it's both oxidized and reduced when it's treated with an alkali. So say we have P4 plus 3NaOH plus 3H2O, we get pH3 plus 3NaH2PO2. And the last part about white phosphorus is that it readily catches fire and gives very dense fumes of P2O5. So the reaction would go P4 plus 5O2 gives us 2P2O5 or P4O10. Now let's move on to red phosphorus. Red phosphorus is non-poisonous. It's insoluble in both water and CS2. It's a polymer that contains P4 tetrahedral units, and it's a lot less reactive than the white phosphorus because it's basically like a polymer of white phosphorus, right? So when it was all alone, due to that angular strain, it was all ready to react with anything that it came in contact with. But, the, but then when you look at the red phosphorus, because this white phosphorus has polymerized, we see that there is a lot lesser angle strain between the phosphoruses, and because of that, it's not as reactive. So how do we make white phosphorus red phosphorus, since it's basically, red phosphorus is basically a polymer of white? Um, we just heat white phosphorus up to a temperature of 573K, and we end up with red phosphorus. And finally, we talk about black phosphorus, which is the final allotropic form of phosphorus. Here it exists as two kinds, alpha black and beta black. Now, the only difference between alpha black and beta black would be the arrangement of the phosphorus. How do we make alpha black? We just heat red phosphorus to a temperature of 803 Kelvin in a sealed tube and for the beta black phosphorus, we heat white phosphorus up to 473 Kelvin in at a very high pressure. And that's all we have about phosphorus. Let's move on to phosphine. What is phosphine? When we checked out the disproportionation reaction of white phosphorus when it was treated with an alkali, 
we ended up with the product pH 3. This pH 3 is phosphine. How do we prepare it? The first way of pre preparing it would be by the reaction of the calcium phosphide with water or dilute HCl. With water, Ca3P2 plus 6H2O gives us 3CaOH twice plus 2PH3. With HCl, Ca3P2 plus 6HCl gives us 3CaCl2 plus 2PH3. And basically what's happening is the calcium takes the OH and the P takes the H when you look at H2O. And finally, the reaction of white phosphorus with an alkali, like we just talked about, P4 plus 3NaOH plus 3H2O, gives us PH3 plus 3NaH2PO2. What is NaH2PO2? It's sodium hypophosphite. Now, to purify the pH3 that we got from impurities, it's heated with hydrogen iodide to form phosphonium iodide. And when this phosphonium iodide is treated with KOH, we get phosphine. Now, what are the properties of phosphine? To start off with, it's a colorless gas with a rotten fish smell and it's highly poisonous. If it's in contact with even the traces of an oxidizing agent, it will explode. So pH 3, in the presence of an oxidizing agent, it catches fire and it forms P4O6. And then the solution of phosphine in water decomposes in the presence of sunlight. So for pH 3, aqueous, under sunlight gives us P4, red, plus 6, H2. And finally, pH 3 is absorbed in CuSO4 in an HC, HgCl2 solution. And it gives you the corresponding phosphide. The next thing we're going to be talking about is going to be home signal. This is basically used in oceans for signaling danger points to other ships. So what happens? To start off with, containers with CaC2 and Ca3P2 are pierced and then thrown into the sea. This reacts with the water to give you C2H2 and pH3. C2H2 is what? It's ethene, right? And that's a pretty good fuel. So C2H2 plus pH3. This pH3 undergoes oxidation, catches fire, and gives us P4O6. And when it catches fire, it also ignites the ethene. And this, because it's a fuel, burns with a luminous flame. And this whole thing is basically our signal. Next, we're going to talk about phosphorus trichloride, PCL3. How do we prepare it? We react white phosphorus with a limited amount of chlorine. We get 4PCL3. And it can also be prepared by reacting P4 with thionyl chloride, SOCl2. Now, thionyl chloride, um, cross-chapter connection, it's used in Darzen's reaction to make an alkyl halide um, in the most efficient way possible. So yeah, in this case, the reaction would be P4 plus ASOCl2. That gives us 4PCl3 plus 4SO2 plus 2S2Cl2. S2Cl2 is disulfur dichloride. Now, what are the properties of phosphorus trichloride? To start off with, it's colorless and it's oily. In moisture, it gives off HCl fumes. PCl3 plus 3H2O gives us H3PO3 plus 3HCl. And when you react it with organic compounds, it replaces the OH group. So we have C2H5OH plus PCl3, giving us C2H5Cl plus H3PO3. What's the structure? It's basically a phosphorus bonded to three chlorines. Um, it's sp3 hybridized. It has a lone pair on top and it's pyramidal. 
And that's the end of phosphorus trichloride. Now we move on to phosphorus pentachloride, PCl5. How do we prepare this? To prepare trichloride, we had to react it with a limited amount of chlorine. With pentachloride, we can react it with an excess of chlorine. So before we took six moles of chlorine, now we take 10 moles. P4 plus 10 Cl2 gives us four PCl5. And we can also react P4 with sulfuryl chloride. P4 plus 10 SOCl2 gives us four PCl5 plus 10 SO2. What are the properties of phosphorus pentachloride? Um, phosphorus pentachloride is a yellow whitish powder. It undergoes complete hydrolysis to form H3PO4. The first step would be PCL5 plus H2O, giving us POCl3 plus 2HCl. This POCl3 is phosphoryl chloride. And then this POCl3 reacts with three molecules of water, three moles or molecules of water, and that gives us H3PO4 plus 3HCl. So if you look for partial hydrolysis of PCL5, the reaction would be PCL3 plus H2O giving us POCL3 plus 2HCl. If we had to go for the complete hydrolysis, we'd start with PCL3, PCL5 sorry, plus H2O giving us POCL3 plus 2HCl. And then we follow it up with the second step, POCL3 plus 3H2O giving us H3PO4 plus 3HCl. And like I said, in organic compounds, just like phosphorus trichloride, it replaces the OH. 2AG plus PCL5 gives us 2AGCL4 plus PCL3. 2SN plus PCL5 gives us 2SNCL4 plus PCL3. And in a solid state, PCL5 exists as an ionic compound. How? 2PCL5 is basically PCL4 plus plus PCL6 minus. What's the structure? Well, it's that structure that you have for an sp3 hybrid where it has three equatorial bonds and two axial bonds and here the bond angles are 90 degrees between the axial and equatorial phosphorus the i mean chlorine and the bond angle is 120 degrees between the equatorial and corresponding equatorial chlorine and 180 degrees for the axial chlorides and our final little part about this phosphorus pentachloride would be PCL5 when it's heated it gives you PCL3 plus Cl2. Why so? When it's heated because these axial bonds are a lot longer than the equatorial bonds they can undergo easy dissociation on heating leaving us with PCL3. Now for the oxo acids of phosphorus this is actually pretty important but most of this is just memorization. And there are quite a few oxo acids. The first one would be hypophosphorus acid. The formula for this is H3PO2, and here the oxidation state of phosphorus is plus one. The preparation for this, not that it's too important, would be 2P4 white phosphorus plus an alkali, 3BaOH twice, plus 6H2O gives us 3BaH2PO2 twice, plus 2PH3. This BaH2PO2 twice reacts with H2SO4 to give us H3PO2 plus BaSO4. Next is orthophosphorus acid. This has a formula of H3PO3 and an oxidation state of plus 3. Here, how do we prepare it? P4O6 plus 6H2O gives us 4H3PO3. Next is pyrophosphorus acid. H4P2O5. 
Again, it's in an oxidation state of plus three. How do you prepare it? PCl3 plus H3PO3 gives us 3H4P2O5 plus 3HCl. Next is hypophosphoric acid, H4P2O6. Again, oxidation state is equal to plus four. Here we take red phosphorus plus an alkali to give us H4P2O6. And then we have orthophosphoric acid, H3PO4. Here the oxidation state is plus five and you make it by the hydrolysis of P4O10. Our next acid would be pyrophosphoric acid. Remember we did pyrophosphorus, that was H4P2O5. Pyrophosphoric acid would be H4P2O7. And here the oxidation state is plus five. How do you prepare it? You just basically heat up H3PO4, you end up with H4P2O7 plus H2O. The last one would be metaphosphoric acid, HPO3N. So this means that there are this many units of HPO3 that are arranged in space. So if we have N equals three, then it forms a cyclic thing. But if N is not equal to three, then it just forms a linear chain that goes on and on. Now, how do you make HPO3 thrice, the one which is cyclic? For that, you just go for H3PO3 plus Br2, heat it up, you get HPO3 thrice plus HBr. Here are some extras. Um, there's also peroxomonophosphoric acid, H3PO5. Here, the oxidation state is plus five. And there's also peroxodiphosphoric acid, which is H4P2O8. And again, here, the oxidation state is plus five. Now, here's some extras. Um, the hydrogens in our oxoacids of phosphorus, they only contribute to the basicity, which is essentially just the number of hydrogens lost. They contribute to the basicity only if they're bonded to oxygen, because that's the only time um, there is a separation of charge strong enough to develop a partial positive and partial negative that allows us to get the hydrogen off as an H plus a lot easier. And then oxoacids with pH bonds act as reducing agents. The more the pH bonds, the greater the reducing character. When we talk about pH bonds acting as reducing agents, we're just talking about the ability to reduce another substance, the ability to have its own hydrogen atom lost. And the final point in this little segment would be um, when phosphorus is in its plus three oxidation state, it undergoes disproportionation. For example, H3PO3, it undergoes disproportionation to give you H3PO4 plus PH3. And with that, we come to the official end of the 15th group elements.